Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to John chapter 9. We get to finish this amazing chapter, one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. Three sermons on this chapter. The first was really small, just a couple of verses that we had to get the the grand purposes of God in our pain. We saw the disciples' question. They pose a question about this man, and their question has wrong assumptions inside of it. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answers their question, but reframes it. It's not about uh, causality here. It's not who caused it. It's about purposes. It's It's not about somebody at fault. Fault won't get you anywhere. It's about purpose. Purpose is the anchor here. And the purpose is that the glory of God would be seen. So we talked about how if that isn't your greatest source of satisfaction, if the glory of God isn't what you desire most, then when you go through suffering, when you go through trials, you are going to have a hard time because you're kicking against God's purposes. So the question is, do we trust him? Do we love him? Do we love him more than we love our comfort? Do we love him more than we love our health? Do we love him more than we love this life? The answer that Jesus gives will not work for anyone who doesn't. And none of us does that perfectly. That's why we gather together to be reminded, show us Christ. Make us see how valuable he is, how infinitely precious he is. We saw that in Family Bible. I were looking at the seven sayings that Jesus said from the cross. These sayings are so precious to us. And we see our Savior on display in his infinite glory on display, even in his last seconds on the cross. So the first sermon was very small. The second sermon was a whole lot of scripture. And we looked at these, there's six conversations. We looked at four of them that the blind man had with the Pharisees, the blind man had with Jesus, the, the blind man or the Pharisees have with Jesus. Um, we saw the, the controversy that ensued based on this miracle. Nobody's saying, hooray, this guy can see. And we talked about that. Pharisees just, when joy abounds... I just saw that this week. When joy abounds, Pharisees go, something's wrong. <laughs> when somebody else is having a great day and, and something good happened and joy abounds, Pharisees don't jump in and go, praise the Lord, I'm so excited for you. They say, something's wrong there. You must have gotten your joy some wrong way. They just police everything instead of saying, I'm rejoicing in the glory of God being on display. So we, we see six conversations. We saw four of them two weeks ago, and this morning we're going to look at two. It's the last two, so we started with the short sermon for John chapter 9. We're going to end with the short sermon in John chapter 9. It's just verses 35 through 41. I want to read these verses, ask God's blessing on our time, and then jump right in. John chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put the blind man out, specifically out of the synagogue, out of Jewish culture, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? 
Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. God, these verses are so powerful. You ordained that these verses would happen. You ordained that these sentences would come about. You planned, you purposed that the blind man would not know who you were until you showed up. And you said, I am he. You ordained that the Pharisees would listen to Jesus' seemingly contradictory statement, I've come into this world for judgment. You ordained all of this. Even the last couple phrases that just can be very tricky. But where else would we go? These are words of eternal life. They grant sight to the blind eyes. So God, I pray this morning that there would be no better prayer to pray from this text than that you would show us our spiritual blindness, humble us, knock us off of the pedestals that we've made for ourselves, whether morally or socially or economically, knock us down, show us our spiritual blindness so that we can be granted sight. Make us a humble church. Make us a church of blind people no more who know that they were blind but now see by the grace of God. Open our eyes now. Give us sight so that we would walk away knowing you alone are worthy of our worship. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So two last conversations that are had here, Jesus and the blind man and Jesus and the Pharisees. And we're going to break those two. That's kind of our outline for this morning, but we're going to break them down into spiritual sight and spiritual blindness because that's really what Jesus is doing here. He's taking this entire section and he's moving away from physical sight and physical blindness to a parable, if you will. This miracle is really a parable of our spiritual blindness and our spiritual sight. So we'll start with the conversation that Jesus has with this blind man, and it's a beautiful picture of spiritual sight. Verse 35, Jesus hears that they had put, they as the Pharisees, had put Uh, the blind man, out of the synagogue. He had been, as we talked about two weeks ago, aposinagoge. He had been cast out. He had been cursed by the Pharisees, by the religious leaders. Uh, No longer allowed to be a part of the culture. No longer allowed to be welcomed into good Jewish homes. He is spurned. He's lost everything by saying, I believe that that man is a prophet. I don't even know who he is, but there's no doubt that he is sent by God because what he just did can only be done by the power of God. So Jesus hears that they had done that. And verse 35 says, finding him. Jesus sought him out. This man had been given physical sight. But Jesus didn't come into the world to give physical sight and just let physically blind people receive their sight and have a better life and then go to hell. Jesus came into this world to give spiritual sight. So he's not done with this man, and he finds him. He seeks him out. Like Psalm 27, verse 10 says, Though father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. I will be received. And he finds him. And he says to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? That's a title. It's a messianic title from Daniel chapter 7. Do you believe 
that the prophet who is talking to you is the Son of God, the Son of Man, is the Messiah, is God come in the flesh. And this man answers, verse 36, in essence, I, I believe, and I want to believe in him, but I don't know who he is. I believe that he is who he claims to be. I just don't know who he is. I haven't seen him. He says, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? I want to believe in him. I'm ready to believe in him. I just don't know who he is. He couldn't pick Jesus out of a lineup. Because you remember, in the beginning of chapter 9, this man was blind. Jesus did the mud, the spittle, and put it on his eyes. And he said, go and wash and you will receive your sight. So this man has never seen Jesus physically. So he says, I want to believe. Maybe I I would recall his voice. And I just have never seen his face. I, I couldn't tell you who he is, but I want to believe in him. He uses this word, Lord. Some of your translations might say, sir. They might translate it as, sir. In context, it probably is just sir, the idea of um, you are, you are um, a respected, honored individual, not Lord as far as master. But it's going to change pretty quickly in verse 38. So he says, I want to believe. I just don't know who he is. Verse 37, Jesus says, it's me. You're seeing him right now. You've both seen him, and he is the one talking to you. I am he. Now you can believe in me And point all of your faith and point all of your belief in me. What would this man's response be? This man knows that Jesus said, it's not because of this man's sin, it's not because of his parents' sin. This has happened, this blindness has happened because God did it so that his glory would be put on display. A lot of people struggle with that, right? A lot of people go, well, why me? Why, why are you letting this happen? Now's a perfect opportunity for him to say, okay, if you are Jesus, if you are the guy you claim to be, can you tell me why you made me the way you did? Why did you let this blindness happen to me? My life was awful. I was a beggar. I want to understand why I was blind. Does he say that? No, he simply says, Lord, verse 38, this time I think this is, Master, I'm submitting myself under you. Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. He humbly submits to him and he worships him. He knows that Jesus is the Son of God and he knows that Jesus has his reasons for the suffering. He knows that Jesus has his reasons for the trials that he allowed this man to go through and purpose that this man would go through. And he knows that those reasons are fine in his mind because he knows that Jesus is kind and compassionate. He's good. And it is ultimately the kindness of our Savior that leads this man to repentance. And in this conversation, we see what it takes, what is necessary for spiritual sight. Just four things that you can clearly see that are necessary for spiritual sight. Number one, verse 35, you have to be sought out by Jesus. If Jesus doesn't initiate in giving you sight, then you can never receive sight. Jesus has to initiate. Verse 35 says, Jesus found him. He heard that he'd been put out and he found him. And he's going to go and ask him if he wants to receive spiritual sight. But he finds him. It's no accident that the next chapter, you guys probably see it, uh, a chapter heading, I am the good shepherd in your Bibles for chapter 10. It's all about the good shepherd who sought and found and gathered his sheep. There's no coincidence there. That's an absolute purpose of God that Jesus is going to say, I'm going to seek you out and find you to give you spiritual sight. 
And I'm also going to seek everyone else out, all those who will be my followers. I have to gather them. It's no accident that this man was healed the way he was. Jesus could have said on the spot, receive sight, done, boom, and he would have followed him right then and there. But Jesus says, I'm going to do this in such a way that I'm going to put mud on your eyes and spittle on your eyes. I'm going to send you away to a pool so you don't even know who I am. If you want to follow me, which this guy does, you don't even know who I am to follow me. So I have to seek you out. Jesus purposed this miracle the way he did because it's a a parable of a miracle to show Jesus seeks us out spiritually to give us spiritual sight. Number two, not only does Jesus have to initiate, there must be a true knowledge of God of the truth and genuine faith in that truth. Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? So there has to be faith. Do you believe? Do you have faith? But there has to be knowledge. Verse 36, he says, who is he? I, I want to believe, but I want to make sure my faith is put in the right thing, the right person. So in order for us to have spiritual sight, Jesus has to initiate, and then there must be true knowledge of the truth, so true knowledge and genuine faith. This man has genuine faith, but right now it's directed in nothing toward nothing until jesus says i am he and he shows himself to be the christ the son of god number three in order to have spiritual sight you need to confess jesus as lord verse 38 once he understands the truth and directs his faith towards the son of god he says lord i believe he confesses jesus as lord he submits himself lord you are my master i am your slave you have my will i no longer have a will uh, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it's no longer I who live, but Jesus who lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for me, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So once, once you come to Christ, if you want to come to Christ in a saving way, your will has to be killed. Right? Jesus says that in Mark chapter 8. You must take up your cross, deny yourself, die to yourself daily and follow me. And this man does that. Lord, I believe. So there's faith and there's submission. I have no more will. Your will is my will. My will is dead. And it's because of what Jesus has done that he's totally willing to do that. Remember the progression of this blind man? First, when his neighbors ask him, who was that guy? And he says, I don't know. He's some really nice man. He uses the word man. He's a man. He's really nice. Thank you for healing me. Then the next time they ask him, the Pharisees say, who do you think he is? And he says, well, he has to be a prophet. And now he's moved to he's Lord. He's a man, he's a prophet, he's Lord. And that's the exact same progression that John, uh, the the gospel writer, is wanting us to see. Uh, Jesus is a man, clearly he's a human, but he's more than just a human, like Nicodemus. You have to be a prophet sent by God, John chapter 3. But John's writing these things so that we believe that Jesus is more than just a man and a prophet. He is the Son of God, and he's proving it yet again here. So you have to have Jesus initiate and seek you out. Number two, you have to have true knowledge and genuine faith. Number three, you have to confess Jesus as Lord and submit your will to him. And number four, you must worship Jesus. This is an evidence of the salvation. If you have true spiritual sight, if your spiritual eyes that were once blind are now open, you will worship Jesus. And that's in verse 38. He says, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. You will worship Jesus. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anybody does not have love for Christ... He is to be accursed. You must love Jesus, and that's exactly what this man is doing. It's a sign that you are truly converted, and it's a a necessity to true conversion, that you must love him more than you love anything else. Um, No one can serve two masters. 
Either you're devoted to the one and you despise the other, or you love the one and you hate the other. Nobody can serve two masters. So this is a beautiful miracle slash parable, even in what Jesus is doing. As he shows us what the necessity in giving spiritual sight. Now, Jesus says something interesting in verse 39. Jesus says, for judgment I came into this world. Now, if you remember the gospel of John backwards and forwards, you'll know that Jesus says twice in this gospel, I was not sent into the world to judge it. Um, You can just write these down. John chapter 3, verse 17. I wasn't sent to the world. The Father did not send me into the world to judge the world. And then we'll get to this in a couple months. John chapter 12, verse 47. I was not sent into the world to judge the world. But here, it's abundantly clear that he says, for judgment I came into this world. So, this is a contradiction, right? This is uh, the place where we throw out our Bibles and we say, well, the Bible doesn't agree with itself, it must be wrong. No, there's actually no contradiction here at all. There's no contradiction. In fact, um, if we had time, go back on your own time to John chapter 3, verse 17. 17, 18, and 19 are clear. Jesus says, I didn't come for judgment, but people will be judged because of the way that they respond to me. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying condemnation was never my first and primary goal. When I was sent by the Father into the world, my first and primary goal was never to condemn anyone. That's not why I came. I came to save. But it inevitably happens that when I save people through the preaching of the truth, that unbelief will be confirmed. And I came knowing that that would happen. Simeon says it about Jesus when he meets Jesus in the temple. He says, this child has been given for the rise and the fall of many. How you respond to Jesus, he will save some And because he saves some, that entails a condemnation of others. Jesus isn't saying I came to execute judgment, but rather that his presence and his activity in the world themselves, by themselves, would constitute a judgment as they compel men to make a choice, to decide for themselves, am I for or against him? And that's why John chapter 3 verse 18 says, those who are against him are judged already. So this isn't a contradiction. You could almost just put judgment, uh, you could almost circle that word and, and put division. For division I came into this world. I came to divide. You must make a choice when you meet Jesus. Um, it's like if you were to ask a, a doctor who is treating um, a, a patient who has severe cancer. If you were to ask that doctor as they are giving them chemotherapy and, and radiation and their sickness and they're losing their hair and they're, they're throwing up and their body is weak. If you were to say, so are you coming in every day to administer these drugs so that my loved one will be in pain and suffer? The answer is no. I, did, I didn't become a doctor to make my patients sick. I became a doctor to make my patients well, to save lives. But that constitutes having to go through a process where sickness, where suffering is a necessity. It's inevitable in order to save lives. That's what Jesus is saying. I came to save, but by my saving, some will be judged. Many will be judged. He says, for judgment I came into this world, verse 39, so that those who do not see may see. And that those who see may become blind. 
And apparently, in verse 40, there are Pharisees that are standing around that hear that statement, and they're going to ask a question. They're going to say, we are not blind too, are we? This brings us to point number two. We saw point number one, spiritual sight, very clearly in this blind man who is blind no more. Not only no longer physically blind, but now he's no longer spiritually blind. But now let's look at spiritual blindness. We've seen the compassion of Jesus on display with this man. Now we see the unbelief of the Pharisees on full display. They're going to say, are we blind too? And if you have to ask that question, probably uh, you're blind. If you have to say, Am I I don't even know if I'm blind. You're probably blind. And this is all about spiritual blindness. The Bible is replete with example after example, verse after verse, of blindness being used as a metaphor for spiritual darkness, walking away from God. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 8, we read that there are people who are blind even though they don't even have eyes. Um, they're, they're not able to see anything, but Jesus says deeper than that, their hearts are unable to see. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 21, people are foolish and senseless. They aren't able to uh, see physically or see spiritually, but they can see physically. Isaiah chapter 56, verse 10 says the same thing. Uh, Jesus calls the Pharisees blind leaders of the blind. Um, Acts chapter 26, Paul says that he was sent with the gospel to the nations to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light. Uh, Even Paul himself, when he was Saul, he was on the road to Damascus. God blinded him and then he gave him physical sight and spiritual sight. In Ephesians 4, um, unbelievers are darkened in their understanding. John 3, Jesus said that sinners love the darkness rather than the light. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, um, characterizes the world of sinners as wretched, naked, miserable, poor, and blind. We all have a spiritual blindness problem. The Bible is filled with examples of that metaphor. But Jesus came to bring light. Jesus came so that those who are blind would be given and granted sight. That's why he says, uh, for judgment I came into this world so that those who don't see can see, that they may be given sight. I did that with this man physically, but I'm doing that with a whole host of other people spiritually. John 8, Jesus says, he's the light of the world. He who follows me will never walk in darkness again. John chapter 12, verse 46, I've come as light in the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. And Paul writes uh, to the church in Thessalonica that true believers are sons and daughters of light, not of the night and of this darkness. And 1 Peter chapter 2 speaks of, uh, verse 9 speaks of the Lord as him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why Jesus is using this now to speak of our spiritual blindness and the spiritual sight and light that he gave, he came to give. So, what about this unbelief, the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees? They say, in verse 40, when they hear these things, they say, we are not blind too, are we? And they're picking up on Jesus' use here of this metaphor. We're not spiritually blind. If you came to judge people, um, we're not blind. We can see, right? Um, Spiritually, we can understand. We can appraise. Why would they say that? They regarded their own sight, which was true blindness spiritually, as Jesus will call them that, as sufficient. They, they regarded their own sight, the law, the tradition of men, as sufficient to bring salvation. They say, we're not blind. We can see. We don't need you to take care of our blindness because we don't have blindness. 
So we don't need a savior if we can figure this out ourselves. Our laws are sufficient to cleanse us. Our tradition is sufficient to save us. Proverbs 26, verse 12. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. The Pharisees are proving themselves to be fools. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. It's not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It's not our weakness that hinders Christ. It's our strength. It's not our darkness that hinders Christ. It's our supposed light that holds back his hand. These Pharisees say we don't need any restoration of our sight because we're not blind. We don't need you to help us in any way because we can see. And so Jesus responds, verse 41, by saying, If you were blind, then you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. If you would humbly admit that you cannot see the light that Jesus is trying to shine into your heart. If you, if you would say, I can't see, I'm in darkness. Then Jesus says, I would cleanse you, you would have no sin. But because you say, so why does he say you say? You say you can see, but you can't. You actually are spiritually blind. You don't think that you are, but you say we see. Therefore, you're not coming to me to be cleansed. You're not coming to me to be given sight and given light. So therefore, your sin remains. The more light that these Pharisees receive, the more it hardens their heart. Rebellion is revealed. Resistance begins. Blindness continues to grow. Just look at this whole story. It's obvious. This this blind man says there's no way this guy can't be a prophet. It's obvious. Everybody knows that. The Pharisees know that. But they will never bow the knee. They won't say, yes, I know that he truly is the Son of God and I will finally submit. One of the things that happens when you stare at the sovereignty of God, specifically in salvation, which we've been doing a lot in this text, in in this book, you start to ask the question, if God is the one who has to initiate, if God's the one who has to draw, if God's the one who has to do all these things, then I am not responsible for anything. I'm not culpable. If I... If I am a sinner, it's simply because of God not saving me. It's simply because of God not doing his job to initiate. Therefore, if I die in my sin, it's not my fault, it's God's. This is a natural reaction, it's an understandable reaction to the sovereignty of God. And I think that John, maybe behind Romans and Ephesians, is probably the book that has, of all books in the Bible, that has the most to talk about the sovereignty of God and salvation. It also talks about our human responsibility, and I believe that this text describes for us our human responsibility. I think it sheds light on this question. Are we responsible if God has to initiate everything, if he's the one who has to draw? Do we have any responsibility at all? If the Pharisees are spiritually blind and they can't see that they need a Savior, then why are they held responsible? Why are they judged? You see the question? Many of you have probably had that question. I've had that question. I think the Bible is very clear with its answer. But just in these verses, just in these verses, I think that there's a sense where in verse 40, the Pharisees are saying, we're not blind too, are we? And, 
And they're using that as not only a prideful statement, but they're also saying, in an effect, they're saying, look, if we are blind, if you came into the world to judge by giving sight to those who are blind and by blinding those who have sight, they're picking up on that last part. Wait, if you blinded me because I have sight, are you telling me that I am, I am blind because we, we could see, we had the law, we knew God, and now you're judging us? I think they're buying into what Jesus is saying. Have we become blind based on your judgment of us because we claim to see? And I think that's why Jesus says to them, if you were blind, if you were blind in your definition, Pharisees, if you have done nothing wrong and you're seeking God and God says, I'm sorry, I just didn't choose you and he judges you and he blinds you. If you're blind that way, then yes, you're innocent. If you've done nothing wrong, if you are not responsible, then you're not going to be held accountable. If blindness is a condition of the mind or the heart that if you have it, you are not held responsible for your sins, then Jesus says you would have no sin. You would have no sin. If you were blind like that, you would have no sin. But there's no such thing as blindness like that. A spiritual blindness that removes all of your human responsibility. A spiritual blindness such that you can stand before God on the last day. And when he says, what did you do with my son? You say, I don't know. I didn't even know that he was who I needed to follow. I don't know that. And God will say, oh, okay, you didn't know. An innocence, an ignorance. That's why he says, you say that we see, and therefore your sin remains. You say it, but you are truly blind in the true definition of the word blindness. Going back all the way to John chapter 3, verse 19, we are blind because we love darkness. We are blind because we don't want the light. We are blind because we don't want to confess that our works are works of darkness. So what Jesus is saying here. What's implied in these verses is that there is a kind of blindness that is rooted in rebellion against God that does not remove guilt, doesn't remove responsibility or accountability. In fact, it brings condemnation upon you. Why? Because spiritually blind people receive judgment because they refuse to admit their blindness, rejecting sight when it's offered. Just just like the blind man is a picture of salvation it's a picture of what happens when god opens our eyes spiritually so too these pharisees are a picture of what happens when we in our sins say i will not bow the knee spiritually blind people will receive judgment not because oh we wanted jesus but he turned us away spiritual people receive spiritually blind people receive judgment because they will refuse to admit their blindness They reject the sight when it's offered. They reject it. So Jesus says, your sin remains. You know that you have sin. And you're saying, but we're we're blind. Uh, We're fine with the law. And and, and you're telling us that you're condemning us because we are doing what we want to do. And we're right in what we're doing. We're fine. And Jesus says, no, you're not. You've been given time after time to submit and to bow the knee and to obey to realize your blindness. So what's the point of this whole chapter? I believe we could say it this way. Jesus did not come to condemn you. He came to open your eyes. But where's your responsibility in that? You have to say, I need my eyes opened. I need my eyes opened. 
He came so that those who do not see may see. So you have to say, I don't see. I need my eyes open. Non-believer, this morning, what is your responsibility? To know that you're blind. Very simply, to come knowing you're blind. To say, I know I'm a sinner. And here's the thing about the word of God. This is why no one is innocent. Romans chapter 2.15 tells me, I know this about your heart. I know this about every human heart that's ever existed. Romans 2.15 says that you know you're a sinner. The law has been imprinted upon your heart such that you know your conscience bears witness against you that you have broken the law and you're guilty. Every person knows they've done wrong things. I also know that you know God exists. Romans 1, 18 through 22. God exists. He's created everything. You know that. Men are without excuse because everybody knows that God created them. They are, they are accountable to God as their creator. And Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that you also know that you are going to die in this life and there's going to be something in the afterlife. We're going to stand before God as our judge and give an account to him. We all know that. So the question is, what do we do with that knowledge? Do we either say, help, I can't fix my sinful heart, or do we say, I'm not really that bad. I'm not blind, am I? I'm not really blind. Or if I am a little bit blind, I'll make rules that will cleanse my heart and I'll be okay. So, have you admitted your blindness? If you're here this morning and you have never said, God, I am a sinner. I have no spiritual sight and I cannot see you and my sin has separated me from you. I have offended you and I can't get rid of that offense on my own. I would plead with you today, admit your spiritual blindness. The Bible would call that in Matthew 5 being poor in spirit. I have nothing to offer you, God. I need Jesus to save me. And just like the blind man, he would love to do that. He would love to do that. But to the believer this morning, those of you who have said, I know I have spiritual blindness and I need Jesus to save me. Those of you who have asked Jesus to open your eyes, to give you a new heart, to cleanse you of your sins. I think there's still a warning in here for us. Self-satisfied people, religious know-it-alls, believe that they see even when they're blind The blind man in John 9 knew his need, just physically. He knew his need. I can see. Those three words were never in his vocabulary as a blind person. Never once did he go, I can see. He knew, I can't see physically. I have no ability to see. He's not self-sufficient. He's a beggar. Can he be proud of anything? Can he be proud of his status? Can he be proud of his knowledge? Can he be proud of his physique? Can he be proud of his accomplishments? Ironically, though, that's possible. Some of us in our sins say, I am a beggar, I know it, but I'm the best beggar that there is. And in our ironic ignorance, we say, we're the king of beggars. But this man didn't. This man came poor in spirit. And it's possible that as you have followed Christ for months, years, decades even, It's possible that as you followed him, you have removed yourself away from the grace that saved you, realizing I am spiritually blind. I have no hope of getting to God on my own. And I need him to come and initiate that work. I need the truth. I need the gift of faith. 
And you, at, at the beginning of your walk with the Lord, you said, yes, praise the Lord, I can do nothing. But now you have drifted into self-sufficiency. You've drifted into some form of legalism. That's one of the reasons why we are studying uh, this book, The Cross-Centered Life. You've drifted into, thanks for saving me, Jesus, but I got this now. Do you realize that you would be just as spiritually blind today if it weren't for the grace of God? You need the same grace that saved you and justified you to sanctify you and bring you to glory. So, I'll end by just saying this. From Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, happy. How happy are people who know they have nothing to commend them to God. How happy are those who realize that within themselves there is nothing that can commend them to God. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How happy are those who know and realize their emptiness and they know that that becomes an occasion for Christ's fullness. That's why we gather together at this table. This is why we take this. This is why we gather to take communion, to remember I have nothing in me to be satisfied or sufficient in myself. Even now, after being saved for years, I still need the same grace that sanctified me, or that justified me back then to sanctify me all the way up until glory. I cannot remove myself to be like the Pharisees. I once was blind, now I see, and now I don't need any help. We come back beggars, needy, every single time we take of the Lord's Supper. We come back as beggars, remembering that day that Jesus said, receive sight. Will we worship him, proclaim him as Lord this morning? May we not be like the Pharisees who say, I don't need you, I can see on my own. God, thank you so much for this amazing chapter. There's so much truth in these verses. So much there that we don't even have time to cover the whole thing. But God, we have been moved now to a place where we are ready to partake of communion. We see our need, our desperation for you to give us sight. Apart from you, we are hopelessly in darkness and blind. And God, if you would grant grace to open our eyes, as we admit, I am a sinner, I am blind, I need you. That is our responsibility. And if we would do that today, you would grant grace to open our eyes. And God, for those of us that that happened many years ago, may we not remove ourselves from that blood-soaked soil of Calvary and, and think that somehow now we can walk this Christian life on our own or somehow we're better than others. Now we once were beggars, we once were blind, but now that we're not beggars and now that we can see, we're better than all the other beggars. I love coming to this table because at the foot of the cross, it is level ground. No one can say I'm better than you. And so I pray that we'd come humble. Make us a humble church, broken, contrite of heart, poor in spirit. For theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. God, please prepare our hearts now to partake of communion together. We pray it in your name. Amen.